Washington. This is Greg Lois from Lois LLC. Sitting to my right, your left today, I'm joined by Mike Tomasino, who's one of the associates in our workers' comp defense practice. Uh, Mike, your boots on the ground. You're going to give us the trial attorney Absolutely. sort of perspective today. Uh, tell everybody about the uh, courts that you go to. Firstly, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in. I primarily handle cases in New Brunswick, Lebanon, and then Plainfield Workers' Compensation Court. Plainfield was formerly Elizabeth Workers' Compensation Court. Great. So we're going to be counting on Mike today to give us sort of his trial attorney, boots on the ground, experience of presenting IME witnesses. Uh, today we're going to be talking about IME witnesses primarily from the defense perspective. Uh, we will be talking a little bit about petitioners' evaluations, but mainly from the defense perspective. Uh, this is our overall uh, New Jersey Workers' Compensation webinar series. Of course, we meet the third Monday, sorry, fourth Monday of every month. We're already there. It's almost Halloween already. I just want to remind everybody that we do have handbooks out. Uh, we also have a lot of articles on our website every month, and we do a newsletter. So please feel free to avail yourself of all of those resources. Um, this is absolutely live, and again, we may screw up, we may joke around a little bit, but this is totally a live webinar. Please feel free to reach out to us with your questions. You can type them up. I actually have a uh, laptop sitting right down here below me, and I can see your questions as you're typing them. We will hold all the questions to the end. And then answer as many as we can. Yeah, we're going to answer as many as we can. It makes it so much more fun when we get questions, so please feel free to ask us questions about any of the topics we discussed today, and even other topics, anything, really. We'll, we'll, we'll take them. Uh, all right, let's, with that, let's begin. Let's talk about IMEs, Mike. Absolutely. All right, so in New Jersey, you can get as many IMEs as you want. I mean, you could get an infinite number of IMEs if you're willing to pay for them. Also in New Jersey, you can get them at any time, and the petitioner has to go. Section 19 of the statute requires such a thing. Generally, we don't pay for mileage or transportation for IMEs. Now, on a one-time basis, we can require the petitioner to attend an IME anywhere in the state, no matter how inconvenient it may be. There are no forms in New Jersey, and on top of it, there's no strict notice requirements, which sets New Jersey aside from other states. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, the law on IMEs in New Jersey is pretty wide open. Uh, Section 19 of our statute is, is basically it. Um, and just, just to build on that, the legal standard for the IME the opinions contained therein, and this is both the petitioner's IME and the defense IME, uh, only have to be expressed, quote, within a reasonable degree of medical probability, which is lawyer talk for more likely than not. Okay, so these are not, uh, you know, uh, within a reasonable doubt or any much higher standards of proof. Again, within a reasonable degree of medical probability is really just, it's, it's likely this is the reason, okay? So that's important to consider that these uh, physicians are not held to an extraordinarily high standard of proof. The second thing is our uh, evaluator, we, our defense IME doctor, doesn't have to come up or opine with some theory of causation. A good example is a claimant has a uh, MRI finding of a single level herniated disc. Our evaluator can say simply, the petitioner's injury is not as a result of the work accident, but they do not have to opine or come up with some alternate causation. Right. And that is important for everyone to understand. It's not their duty to come up with some new theorem. Uh, finally, uh, where we can set the IME and how we can set it, it's all uh, uh, set forth in Section 19 of the statute, and there's basically going to be a reasonable standard. I mean, yeah, we could have 50 IMEs in, during a case, but at some point, petitioner's going to object. They're not going to appear. Right. We're going to try to compel them to go, and I don't think a judge is going to agree with us. No. So let's be reasonable about that, and, and New Jersey is, is a very reasonable state for setting these up. All right, um, let's also talk about uh, expenses and costs. Our evaluators, the defense side evaluator, 
whatever they're going to charge us, that's what we're going to pay. In other words, there's no limitation on what they can charge for an IME. Uh, the petitioner's evaluators were limited to only $400 for many, many years. I mean, as long as I can remember. And just this year it changed, and now the most they can get for an evaluation is $600. Um, and that was really in response to petitioner's attorneys basically saying, hey, judge, how are we going to get a good evaluator? Who's only going to accept $400? I mean, come on. And, and these evaluations could take quite some time. So uh, that should uh, help the petitioner's attorneys get some better evaluators. We're going to talk about their IME doctors later. All right, let's talk about using IMEs. Um, Mike, tell us about the effective use and when to get them. Absolutely. So there are many times when we would want to use IMEs. The first, and, and what I think one of the most important scenarios would be, when the petitioner alleges a new injury or injury to a new body part, Sometimes these are referred to as, say, derivative injuries. We always want to get the second opinion. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. always want to obtain an IME in, this, in uh, these scenarios. Yeah, if the treating physician is relating some new body part. Right. Absolutely. Correct. Also, we always get an IME to defend motions for med intent. In those scenarios, the petitioner is going to come in with some type of report. The report is going to request some form of treatment, and we're going to need our own opinion to say why that treatment isn't needed. Mm -hmm. um, the IMEs that you most frequently see would be, when the petitioner reaches MMI, mm -hmm. and then of course also at times when we want to extend a voluntary tender. Um, typically, sometimes we'll see uh, people push for earlier IMEs or sometimes later IMEs. You got to keep in mind that the voluntary tender has got to be issued within the first six months mm -hmm. of the petitioner's reaching MMI. So the IME, if you want to issue a voluntary tender, should be at least authored fairly close to the petitioner's being declared MMI initially. Yeah, I think in general we're pretty aggressive about that. I mean, we like an early IME. We don't really see a great value in waiting four or five months right. to go on schedule. And just remember, even the day the petitioner reaches MMI, it's not like you're going to be able to get an IME scheduled the very next day, right? I mean, these things are scheduling out months in advance. Months often, right. Okay. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the typical sort of scenario that we see all the time. And uh, by that, I mean the two different sort of dueling experts. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. I'll tell you what. If you look onto the screen here, you can see the two reports. The reports come out of a single case. The report from Dr. Canario, our report, gives only 5% disability, whereas the petitioner's report for the very same individual gives 50%. In my experience, I attribute that to two different causes. Mm -hmm. Firstly, you have to understand that the petitioner's attorneys choose the physicians right. that the petitioner goes to. Yeah. So they're always going to choose physicians that they know will apportion large numbers. Right. And then secondly, we believe that generally, just from seeing them at trial, the petitioner's experts are more paternal. They take this very sympathetic approach to, to assigning levels of disability, and they often give greater weight to the petitioner's subjective complaints than with the the physicians that we hire. Right, right. 100% agree with that sort of uh, characterization of them. Um, all right, so both parties are getting these evaluations. Again, same patient, wildly different estimates of uh, impairment, medical impairment, and here's how they're really coming into the case. And, and in this sort of example of this flowchart we're looking at, we're imagining that the petitioner already reached maximum medical improvement. Both parties get evaluations. The evaluations disagree significantly about the amount of residual permanent impairment. Uh, and now it's time to discuss settlement. And that's really when we see the most use of these evaluations. It's really when the parties are discussing their demands, counter demands, and negotiating that settlement for the amount of permanent medical impairment. Uh, Mike, let's talk a little bit about evaluators. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, this doctor, that doctor, this doctor only does IMEs, not, not as good as that doctor, meaning um, is this a physician they'd want treating them? But I think as, as defense attorneys, 
we have a totally different view of, of what uh, medical opinion we're looking for. So let's talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. The first thing that I always look for, at least I think Greg can, can back this up, is the specialty of the physician. We want someone that's highly, speci uh, highly specified, and as I say, in a scenario with an orthopedist, one who has performed surgery right. for some time. In particular, we love certifications. Board certifications and things of the like give great weight to the testimony authored by the uh, IME physician. Yes. Also, we like uh, long histories, uh, surgeons or physicians who have done this for some time, mm -hmm. and that we also have a good personal knowledge of mm -hmm. that we've used before. Cost certainly is a factor that we keep in mind. We don't want to spend unnecessarily. However, you've got to keep in mind that at times when, you know, there is a lot of exposure in the case, a more expensive IME may be uh, justified. And then lastly, how do they testify? We always want IME physicians who we know will testify well. This is especially true in cases that we know that there's going to be a motion or a trial to where the physician will have to come into court. Yeah, and, and you know, just I don't mean to interrupt you, but just to talk about uh, how they testify, this really to me means two things. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, they're always going to testify uh, in our favor, right? It just means that if they have an opinion, they're really going to stick to it. Uh, they don't get rattled, they don't get shaken, uh, and they're going to stay within their report and within their evaluation. I mean, Petitioners, attorneys love to pose hypotheticals to our evaluating physicians. They love to say, well, doctor, if you knew this, or well, doctor, if you knew that, and sort of try to get them out of you know, the four corners of their report to try to get them to change their opinion and then show, hey, this doctor has no credibility. So what we really mean is, when we say, how are they testing? We mean, like, really, how do they appear? Are they going to stick to their guns? Are they going to stick to their report? Can I predict how they're going to testify? And that's important. Uh, and it's important to us, too, when we're prepping uh, to consider how we're going to cross-examine our adversaries medical expert. Remember, petitioner's attorneys, just as Mike mentioned earlier, they're out there picking doctors they think are going to be favorable. They're going to give them the highest degree of medical impairment possible. Um, and, you know, when we're cross-examining these physicians, they're expert physicians. I mean, they've right. testified hundreds of times. They, they know the score. So we really need to prepare and present the best case to destroy them. Uh, first, I always love to prepare in advance with my expert. I mean, I'll reach out to our defense expert and I'll say, look, here's the report. Tell me where I should go with this. And it's been really a great way to prepare because they'll tell you, hey, Greg, uh, if, they, if they did this range of motion test, they would have had this information. They didn't look at it. I've had my um, defense medical experts uh, point me in the direction of correct uh, studies or articles published in medical, medical journals. journals. Absolutely. As a way to undermine our adversary. Um, when I'm examining our adversaries' positions, I'm always focusing on what's the objective evidence, right? Because that's the standard in New Jersey. The judge can, you know, sort of pick and choose between the physicians, close to Cordelac says they can sort of based on credibility. But the answer is that they can only be as credible as the objective scientific evidence that's been presented to them. I will always cross-examine our adversaries' positions on how subjective the complaints of pain are, uh, how subjective the complaints of loss of range of motion. Did you test that, uh, doctor? How did you test it? I love to challenge them using any sort of uh, studies, uh, articles, journals, and of course medical standards. I mean, in our uh, the area that we practice, uh, and, and that's all over the state of New Jersey, we are present in every court, we see a wide disparity. I believe there's a wide disparity right. between the credentials of our adversaries, IME physicians, and our IME physicians. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, we have general practitioners evaluating claimants on the behalf of the petitioners, right? We have um, physicians with no board patients giving opinions in orthopedic exposure right. cases. Uh, we have physicians who have never operated before. Um, I can give you many examples from our uh, testimony that we've actually elicited where the doctor is opining and disagreeing with our orthopedic surgeon about whether the person needs a hip surgery, and you say, well, did you ever do hip surgery? 
No. Do you have any orthopedic training? No. Have you ever done any orthopedic surgery ever in your life? Well, in medical school in 1962, I observed or I did a, an orthopedic rotation. Really? So that's the last time you and, – and really you can, under, you can undercut their testimony uh, by showing that lack of credibility and they don't know the prevailing standards. So those are just some thoughts. Um, so that's how we're cross-examining their physician. But remember, they have an advantage over us, and well, tell us about it. <laughs> they can <Absolutely>. prepare. <laughs> they prepare. So you have to understand that when the petitioner goes to his physician, he's prepared. Here's a great example from uh, when we were at the end of court. Greg, do you want to give Yeah, sure. Experience? So, so uh, we know that petitioners' counsel are preparing their, their uh, clients as to what to expect at these IMEs, right? And if you want to have some fun and you have, like, a, a boring weekend or it's raining, uh, well, go on YouTube and just Google the term how to ace your independent IME, right. how to ace or, or trick the insurance company's evaluator. In search terms, you'll start to see video after video after video that are made by plaintiff's attorneys, and these videos are really coaching their clients as to how to prepare for the IMEs. Uh, so please understand they do that. And we've probably all seen IMEs where the uh, petitioners come to the IME and they have like a pain journal where they've written down all their complaints so they can remember them, so they can, uh, on, uh, when they're asked by the doctor what hurts, they can just go through all their lists. And uh, we recently learned in some training that we did uh, that some of the petitioners, after they come out of the evaluation, will sit down and fill out questionnaires and uh, surveys that are given to them by their attorneys to prepare the attorney to cross-examine our defense IME. So just remember, you know, as prepared as we can be, and even though we can get, I think, generally speaking, much better experts right, than our adversaries can because we can afford them, uh, at the same time, they can do things to affect the outcomes of these IMEs, and that's certainly their preparation. All right, let's talk a little bit about how we get the best possible report from our evaluator, Mike. Absolutely. So let's go into a little bit about the different parts of the report. First, you've got the biography. That's like the identity, any vital statistics. Often the uh, physicians will talk about different tests that have been ran in that yeah. section as well. Mm -hmm. Also, the petitioner's medical history, not only relating to this claim, but also, say, previous claims or previous injuries. The best possible thing that we look for, radiology studies, because they're objective. MRIs fall into that category, mm -hmm. and they, uh, they kind of divide and makes it more difficult for the petitioner's physician to testify against us if we've got a radiology uh, study. Hopefully a clean MRI. That right. Would be nice. All right. Yeah. Uh, also physical findings, and then, of course, at the very end, the estimate of disability and whether or not the petitioner can work, and to, if so, to what extent of his working ability. Yeah. Now, in regards, in order to get the best report, you've got to first draft the cover letter. Um, I know that a lot of our clients sometimes schedule the petitioner for his IME. It's a service that we like to provide, and here's why. Whenever I sit down and write a cover letter, I try to include three things, medical records, discovery, and then also surveillance if we have it. The letters, the actual cover letters that you send to the physicians are discoverable, so we try and make sure that there's no excess information, information that we want to use against us. In regards to the medical records, uh, we take all the information that we gather that we believe is pertinent. That comes from materials that we've gathered from requests for medical information, interrogatories, uh, HIPAA responses, subpoenas, also yep. Social Security earnings, and ref, uh, health records from the employer or sometimes even former employers, if available. Yeah, and, and just to build on that point before we move further, because uh, I know you're about to get into the interrogatories and other types of discovery, uh, even if we have medical that hurts our case, I want that going to my IME physician because uh, it's going to come up. Either they're going to be cross-examined on it or it's going to undermine our opinion. So we're giving them really every piece of medical information that we have in our file. Absolutely. Get to them early and then let them decide how they want to use it or address in our own report. Yep. Yep. 
Okay, and then additionally, we have standard occupational interrogatories that we send in many cases. Now, in our interrogatories, we purposefully send questions in which we require the petitioner's attorney to sit down and itemize and sit there line by line and list all the physicians that provided treatment to the petitioner. Okay, not only that, but we ask for copies of all the records from that treatment. This enables us to gather all of the petitioner's medical history very early on, and not only for our own assessment, but for us to forward it to our IME physician as well. Yeah, and it's great at undermining those long-term occupational repetitive exposure cases. Uh, we also provide our evaluator with basically everything we think that they need, any discovery we've obtained during the case, uh, and that could be, and typically this is in the occupational pulmonary, occupational repetitive orthopedic sort of context, uh, all information that we're developing during the course of our normal discovery, everything we're getting from the location that we think would help the physician uh, put together a better picture of what that workplace was like, what the work the person was doing, what they were actually exposed to. Um, this is also a time for us to uh, perhaps use some of that surveillance that we obtained during the case. Uh, you know, Mike and I love great surveillance. I love it when we catch the claimant working. Right. Uh, I love it when we have the petitioner, you know. Fully uh, manual labor. Yeah or, yeah, or doing something around the house. Right. I mean, they're painting the fence. They can't come to work, but they're painting the fence. But let's be frank, most surveillance that we obtain, most of the surveillance that I review anyway, it's useless. It's true. It's the person woke up, uh, got out of bed, drove the kids to school, went out, bought some beer, bought right. some lottery tickets, bought cigarettes, came home. You know, it's just the sort of normal average day of someone who's not going to work. Uh, not too exciting, let's be frank, but sometimes that could be very useful in undermining the statements given by the petitioner to the evaluating or the treating physician. You know, they come to our evaluating physician, they say, you know, I, I can't uh, walk, I can't sit I can't sit still for 30 minutes. I struggle well, driving. I can't drive. And, and here we have them driving for 30 minutes, that's sitting, or driving a car, which they claim they can't do. And it just helps undermine the credibility. Again, it's not a per se fraud. We're not going to get the whole case thrown out. Uh, but it might be a useful way of using that surveillance that maybe we otherwise would have just thrown in the garbage because it doesn't really show a per se or obvious fraud. Um, just the last little point on surveillance, though, if, if we do turn it over to our IME physician, guess what? It becomes discoverable. Yep. Cat's right. out of the bag, and it's not going to have any more sort of uh, prize value in this case. So just a quick sort of you know reminder that if we do send it to the IME doctor, it's out. All right. Uh, let's talk about trial and settlement uh, because that's really our goal. Let's try to close these cases as fast as humanly possible. Uh, let's talk about how the IME doctor affects the trial and, and how we use them at trial. Certainly. So let's first go and look at, I guess, just the posture of a trial. In workers' compensation trials in New Jersey, first the petitioner testifies, and then after that would be any of the petitioner's lay witnesses, and then it would be, say, the respondent, our lay witnesses. It could be the employer. It could be someone who works with the petitioner that saw the accident in question occur. Mm -hmm. And then the medical experts testify. Petitioners first and then our own. Uh, the reason that we bring that up is that typically testimony is very quick and very cheap for not only the petitioner, but all lay witnesses. Right. I mean, we're bringing in our own people. Right. We don't have to pay them hourly fees right. to come in. And we're not paying the petitioner to be there, obviously. Right. So it's a great way to get those facts out. Absolutely. However, it's the complete opposite with medical experts. And in particular, uh, say, treating physicians. So medical experts, their testimony is typically rather slow and expensive. The treating physician, their testimony is wildly slow. If they ever come in. If they ever if come they in. Do. Yeah. The goal always, uh, at least ideally, would be to either settle the case prior to trial or upon the conclusion of the lay uh, witnesses. We kind of try to avoid going to the medical experts unless need be just mm -hmm. because of the cost. Right. 
Right. I mean, this is really coming down to, generally speaking, a business judgment from our client's perspective. And we're telling them, like, look, it's cheap to, be, to begin the trial. It's expensive to finish the trial. And so unless there's a real um, need, uh, we're advising them that, hey, just can keep in mind, those trial costs are going to escalate once we have to bring in the experts. All right. I think that's pretty much the end of our prepared remarks. Uh, we do have some questions already coming in, so I'm going to take a look at these. Um, I have the first question. Uh, this is Gloria Jean who asked the question, what can be done when the employee's counsel does not forward medical as he's been requested to do? Does that place us in an awkward position? All right, Mike, this is an easy, this is uh, softball. Right. Thank Certainly. you, Gloria. What do we do, Mike, when they're refusing to turn over meds? What, My what? favorite thing, we follow motions to compel immediately. <laughs> exactly. Right. right. Anyone, the judge is going to make them do it. Right. Anyone that refuses discovery, we'd like to file a motion. Uh, if we can, we hold their their face to the fire. We bring them into court. I think we, the saying is feet to the fire. Feet to the fire. Don't want to shove any faces yes, in fires this week. <laughs> All right. We may want to, though, but, yeah. But, uh, and we also, once you file the motion, it makes us look a little bit better in court. We take it to the petitioner, and then the judge comes in and yells at the petitioner's attorney right, right. about the discovery not being right. there. This is, I mean... There are discovery rules that petitioner is required to turn over all medical records to us. Uh, if they fail to do so, we can compel them. And, you know, this is a very basic motion. Really, our paralegals would sort of draft this up. We'll check it and sign it. Very quick, very easy. And generally speaking, you will get orders from the judges. I mean, you know, sometimes it is frustrating in New Jersey workers' comp. Judges don't like to dismiss cases too much, and they're very slow and careful. They don't want to hurt any of the parties. But in order to compel discovery, uh, we see they those. They do sign this. Okay. Uh, Myron asked a question. Um, you mentioned that petitioners' examiners give more weight to subjective complaints. How do judges view this? In the example you provided, the 5 versus the 50, would we ever get a judge to approve a settlement between 5 or 10%, or is it pointless to try and negotiate a settlement down uh, to such a favorable rating? So let's, let's, let's unpack that question because there's a couple different questions in there. First is, um, you know, we have definitely seen a wide disparity between the evaluators. In fact, pretty much the only time I ever see evaluators almost exactly find the same, both petitioner's evaluator and defense evaluator, is stuff that's almost purely objective, which is stuff like audiometric testing. Hearing loss cases, my experience has been, yeah, they'll vary on the finding of tinnitus, because that's pretty subjective, but on things like what is the percentage loss of hearing from a loud explosion, they're going to get really close, okay? Uh, the same thing uh, for some eye tests. Uh, we know when there's an ophthalmological injury, we've seen very, very similar outcomes. And the generally speaking, is there's less gamesmanship sort of in there. Um, I have also seen, generally speaking, pulmonary function tests, when they're administered correctly and appropriately, come out pretty close. The way they're interpreted can change, but the actual functional testing will come out pretty close. But the places where we see the wide disparity is the psych cases, the psychological injuries, uh, the neurological injuries, and, of course, the orthopedics, right? And the classic orthopedic is, you know, a fractured forearm, a fractured ulna or radius, and our evaluator finding 2.5% permanent disability right. to the arm, and their doctor finding 50%, and they're just all over the place. Um, and I really do agree strongly with what Mike said, which is that their evaluators are being selected. Hey, they're being picked by the attorneys, right? right? They're going to pick somebody who's favorable to them. They're, they know what the numbers they're going to throw out there, just as Mike said. And the second part is I think those physicians are just genuinely, just authentically more paternalistic they're more sympathetic. Right. And when the petitioner comes in there and they say, I, my arm just aches all the time, I'm in so much pain, I can't lift anything, they just, they just write that down. Um, on cross-examination, as a young attorney, you know, I was once your age, okay, I, I was uh, uh, cross-examining a petitioner's doctor, and I was just going after him and after him. And eventually the doctor said to me, they said, Greg, I'm not a detective. 
If they tell me that their arm hurts and they can't use it, that's what I put in my report. Right. In other words, his opinion was like, it's not, I'm not supposed to get to the truth. I'm just supposed to sort of parrot what they're saying. So that's a totally different, I think, outlook or mindset. Our, right. Our, our positions are generally speaking. Our positions, generally speaking, are better credentialed. Uh, they have got better experience, um, but they're also generally conservative. I mean, let's be frank. We're also selecting positions that we think are going to be favorable. I mean, this is there is an element of gamesmanship. Now, uh, there will be times and opportunities in workers' compensation cases where the judge will suggest a neutral. And the judge will suggest a physician. Generally speaking, I like to stay away from that, uh, but that is also an opportunity. And that's a situation where the judge would uh, pick a physician who generally is an active treater and generally not aligned with either of the parties. And we generally see that done more often in motions for men and Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so Linda asked the question, how many IMEs does the claimant have to miss before you file a motion to suspend benefits? Well, under Section 19, you could file the motion that the first time they miss an IME, uh, but generally speaking, that's not done. Generally speaking, I think the statewide practice is they miss one, we reschedule it once, and then if they miss the second one, uh, we would then uh, file a motion. Oh, sure. Yeah. And just remember, um, during periods in which they refuse to attend an IME, so for any reason they say, I'm not going there, I'm not going to do that, uh, you can absolutely suspend benefits in New Jersey, and Section 19 allows you to do that. All right, I think that's all the questions we have. Um, thanks for everybody, Gloria, Jean, Myron, and Linda who asked us questions. If anybody has any other questions, please feel free to reach out to us. You can send us emails. Uh, our contact information is in the handout materials. Next month, we're talking about evaluating cases for exposure. This is essentially how we price cases, uh, how we come up with our exposure narratives. So please join us for that. Okay. Thanks, Thank everybody. You.